This is a podcast from Minute Media. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast. This week, we are diving into the history of Duran Duran. Yep, we're going to go from beginning of the band all the way through the Rio album and maybe a few stories afterwards. We're not talking about the album today, Rio. We're going to talk about that next time. Jason, if you need to borrow my CD, you can use it. Okay. Try not to bruise it. Buy time, don't lose it. I'm sorry, it's just a reflex. I apologize. I apologize. (laughs) All right, let's dive into the history of one of the most influential bands of early MTV. They shaped the 80s, really. Yeah, first I have to issue a formal apology. In the past, I referred to them basically as pretty boys who didn't know how to play their instruments, and that was a gross inaccuracy. They are pretty, don't get me wrong. Right. But these guys are strong musicians, and after going through these albums and looking at the music on this, these guys knew what they were doing. I mean, they weren't the studio musicians that Toto were, but these guys knew how to make some amazing and very, very unique music. They really did grow quickly as musicians, but when they started, Nick and John decided they were going to make a band neither one of them could play. Right. I mean, but that's I mean, that's not uncommon, right? Ambition you know? before right. knowledge. And they had the whole big picture idea. It was like we talked about with Def Leppard, right? Joe Elliott had the name of the band before he had the band. Right, exactly. So you got to think about what was going on at the time that these guys are deciding to become musicians, right? We've got the 70s music scene. So you've got punk, you've got glam, you've got funk, you've got disco, and you've got the birth of this new kind of synthesizer style of music, all of which are impacting these guys' musical tastes. For sure. Oh, by the way, you've got a cable channel that's about to come into fruition called MTV. Right. So these guys were a part of what we called the Second British Invasion. We talked about it when we talked about Def Leppard. We talked about it with the police. And they were considered what they called the New Romantic style. And the New Romantic just meant they were grabbing the glam rock kind of pizzazz and then adding it to this kind of 18th and 19th century style. So you think about Adam Ant and the frilly collars and the right. painted face and earrings and leather pants. Just this kind of weird mixture of stuff, which is what they had. But by the time the 80s roll around and we get these guys here in the United States, they've left all that behind and they've got their own fantastic style, which I think had to influence the costumes in Miami Vice. Oh, for sure. For sure. Crockett and Tubbs are all over the Rio video. Now, we're comparing these guys to Toto. We're comparing the Rio album to the Four album. We talked about how Africa is kind of like this outlier as far as music goes. That song has been downloaded 1.1 billion times, right? Yep. And... What's interesting is right now, we just had our Toto episodes come out, and we've got people going, oh, I just saw those guys in concert with Journey. Yeah. Right. You can also buy tickets right now to go see a Duran Duran concert. They had their latest album come out in October of last year. I know. Our friend Melissa Mingle, she's got tickets already. Yeah. The other interesting thing is that these guys are on the forefront of the fan vote for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So a component of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductees is a group of folks are submitted to fans and the fans vote and it was Eminem in the lead for a long time but then Duran Duran slowly built up some momentum past Eminem as of last month and this month they're over a hundred thousand votes ahead of them. So if you're talking about a band from the 80s I mean I love that they're still doing music but their chart topping hits happened in the 80s and the 90s. That was 25 years ago. Yeah. And they now have over the nearly 700,000 votes for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So if you're a Duran Duran fan and you're listening to this podcast, go vote for them for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Time to rock the vote. <laughs> All right. So shall we get into the history? Let's get into the history. Okay. Our story begins back in the 60s. It begins with a club called the Rum Runner. 
So the Rum Runner was this club that used to be a casino. It was on Broad Street in Birmingham, but at the Rum Runner, all kinds of actors and musicians would just go to hang out. You had Black Sabbath hanging out there. You had Roy Wood from ELO. And the two sons of the owner decide, hey, you know, we're about to take this place over. We're going to go on a trip over to New York City, and we're going to go to Studio 54. They come back from seeing Studio 54. They're like, we're going to take our club and we're going to renovate it and we're going to do it in the style of Studio 54. Okay. And so they have this kind of discotheque idea and they're starting to bring new bands in. Well, as it happens, these rather good-looking guys come in with a demo tape and the two brothers, Paul and Michael Barrow, say, okay, let me see what you got. They listen to it and they say, we want you to be a part of our club. Uh-huh. Not only that, we want to manage you. And so they form a management company for the purpose of managing this band that becomes the house band. And they are basically the other two members of the band. The the album Seven and the Ragged Tiger, the reason that it's seven and not five, is the other two are Paul and Michael Barrow, the owners of the Rum Runner. Right. And the Ragged Tiger is success. Yeah. Seven and the Ragged Tiger. Right. So these guys that call themselves Duran Duran... Where do they come from? Yeah, they come from Hollywood. What? Hollywood. Hollywood, England. England. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Birmingham, Alabama. No, not Alabama. <laughs> yes. So Nick and Nigel were good buddies back in Hollywood. Nigel. Nigel. I didn't grow up with anyone named Nigel. <laughs> Me either. It's I didn't. a very British name. It is. Uh, and so Nigel actually changed his name back to his middle name, John. Yeah. So Nick Rhodes, born in 62, his original name was Nicholas James Bates. The last name, like Bates, I can see how you might get teased. Yeah. Yeah. Master Bates. Yes. In England, even. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) His his parents owned a toy shop. I thought that was kind of cool. Okay. He became childhood friends with John Taylor. They formed a group, like you said, even really before they were able to play their instruments called RAF or R-A-F. Stands for Royal Air Force. Another one of the bands that Nick and John participated in was this band called Shock Treatment. And so Shock Treatment actually played for John's senior class. Okay? (laughs) Okay. So you're up there in front of your classmates. And he said, here's what I learned about Shock Treatment. Number one, Shock Treatment was awful. Number two, I couldn't wait to do it again. So Nigel, John, Taylor had been born in 60. He was a couple years older than Nick, and he had these thick glasses, and he was this goofy kid who was into playing war like James Bond. Yeah, they both loved James Bond. Yeah, but he was also into Roxy Music, uh-huh. and they decided, hey, we want to be big rock and roll stars, and he enjoyed the funkiness of Sheik's bass player, Bernard Edwards. You know, Sheik was a Nile Rodgers venture. Yes, it was. Well, that would be interesting for them later on because... He goes on to play on Notorious and produce them, and he's a big part of Duran Duran. Yes. He always calls them Duran. He just says it one time. I know, right? I love it it when he does that. (laughs) Okay, so John and Nick get together with this guy named Stephen Duffy, and they decide to form a band. Okay. Stephen's going to be doing the lead singing. John is going to be playing guitar, and then Nick is playing the keyboards, right? Yep. And then they get this guy named Simon Coley to play the bass. But something that important that we've got to talk about is the name. Yeah, absolutely. So in addition to the Rum Runner in Birmingham, there were a few different clubs, right? One of the clubs that these guys played at was called Barbarellas. Yeah. Named after a movie that starred Jane Fonda. Yes. And in the movie, there's a character. That character's name is Durand... Durand. Good enunciation. I just want to make sure I get the last D's there. Yeah, so they, Durand Durand, which I'm sure as you're listening to it, watching it on the telly, if you will, (laughs) sounds like Durand Durand. And so John Taylor's watching Barbarella, because, you know, why not watch a movie about the, that's got the club named after, right? right? And he's like, Durand Durand. Mom, is that a good name for a band? (laughs) Sounds weird to me. Okay, good name for a band then. That's exactly That's right. It. Yeah. That's what happened. Barbarella produces the name Duran Duran. So John and Nick are playing with Stephen and Simon, 
And then something happens and they leave. Yeah. Well, the singer and the other guitar player, the other guy you don't recognize, they ghost them. Like they just never show back up. They're like, practice tomorrow. Okay. Where are the guys? I don't know. Never saw them again. Just wow. vanished. How'd you like to be the guy that was in Duran Duran and then decided that working at the grocery store was better? Well, to be fair, Stephen Duffy has gone on to some success in the music industry. He is not, I mean, it hasn't been Duran Duran's success, but okay. he, he has been a successful musician. He has played with Robbie Williams. He's okay. played with the guy from the Bare Naked Ladies. He's produced albums. He's... He is not a failure as a musician, but he's not Duran Duran successful. He's not Simon LeBond. No, right. He's not <laughs> Simon LeBond. So John and Nick are in this situation where they're down to just them again. And so they're like, okay, well, we need to try to find a singer. And they find this guy named Andy Wicket. Now, there's a case to be made that Andy Wicket is responsible for a large part of the music of Girls on Film and of Rio. Uh-huh. And this is this is backed up by Roger. I mean, this isn't just, you know, like, I was on that. No, like, literally, Roger Taylor is like, yeah, that was a large, in a large part, him. Uh-huh. And so they've got a singer, and they've got... Bass player. A bass player, and they've got a keyboardist. They meet this guy at a party who is a drummer. Uh-huh. Roger Taylor. There you go. So they bring him in, and they like the rock aspect, the edge that he brings to their band. Yeah. And so they wanted to have synths. Nick was very, Nick's a strong personality. Absolutely. And and he's a great song builder. Yep. They wanted rock and they wanted synth. Yeah. Okay. So Roger Taylor, also born in 1960, he had been drumming since he was about 12 years old, self-taught, would just play along with the records. Right. His dream was to be a goalie for Aston Villa soccer. He's a big soccer guy. Yeah. He and his dad went to every single game at Villa Park. Unfortunately, you know, he didn't make it, but he did get to play there as a drummer when they played their charity concert in 1983. Very good. He also was influenced by the Roxy music. His big influence was Paul. Paul Thompson, Charlie Watts of the Rolling Stones, and Tony Thompson of Chic. Yeah. So we got Roxy Music and Chic as a commonality for John Taylor and Roger Taylor. They're just like, oh, both Taylors. Okay, well, people are going to think we're brothers, but whatever. No, see, yeah, that's exactly right. When they added Roger to the lineup, you got Nick Rhodes, you got John Taylor, and you've got Andy Wickett. When they add Roger Taylor, they're like, oh, you're great, man. Come on board. What's your last name? He's like, Taylor. They're like, ah. All right, all right, fine. No, no big deal. I think they said they had been playing together for like a few weeks before they were finally like, what's your last name? <laughs> <laughs> well, that becomes even funnier here in just a second. Right. So Roger Taylor, before he had joined Duran Duran, was a, a member. He was a member of a band that he had formed called the Scent Organs. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> they ended up being regional finalists for the Melody Maker Young Band of the Year. So this isn't a, he's no slacker. They make a demo tape. Uh, four songs, Girls on Film, Enigmatic Swimmers, See Me, Repeat Me, which we talked about kind of as the building blocks for Rio. Yeah. And then Breaking Away. They shop that demo to companies around London. Yep. They get a little interest, not much, but they run into the boroughs. And the boroughs are like, yeah, we are interested. We want to manage a band. We've got this club. Why don't you come be the house band? So that's success. I mean, they're like, hey, you're good enough to become the house band. And as soon as they get in there, Andy Wicket quits. So the Rum Runner is no insignificant thing. I mean, being the house band there, the Rum Runner is a big deal. Right. They had rehearsal spaces that other bands would play at. Dexy and the Midnight Runners played there. UB40 played there. If you've seen the video for Mirror in the Bathroom by The Beat, that's the Rum Runner. Okay. And so it's kind of a big deal that they're the house band there, but that's not the only job that they have. Right. They all work there in other capacities. Roger was a glass collector. John was a bouncer. Nick was the DJ. And each night, the Rum Runner had different styles of music that would play. And so they kind of were exposed to all of these different styles. Nick is obviously, being the DJ, is getting all kinds of musical input. And they're actually moving him from different from night to night so that he's getting different musical styles that way as well. And so they're like, okay, we need a guitarist. Let's put an ad out. In the Melody Maker. Yes. So Andy Taylor had been playing cover bands for American soldiers, okay? Yeah. So he had learned to kind of play for a crowd and stuff like this. He responded to the ad. He called the secretary for the Rum Runner, and he's like, hey, my name's Andy. I'm interested in auditioning as the guitarist. And she said, 
okay, come on down, whatever, you know, British accent. <laughs> and he said, what's the name wait, wait, of the band? So he says, what's the name of the band? Yeah. And she goes, Dren, Dren. <laughs> and he's like, I'm, I'm sorry, what What was that? She's like, Dren, Dren. He said, okay. He had no idea what she was saying. <laughs> so he didn't know until he showed up. He's like, okay, Duran, Duran. Okay, I'm with it now. So Andy had been playing guitar since he was 16. One of the guys that taught him how to play guitar is a guy named Dave Black, who was in The Spiders from Mars, which was the backing band for David Bowie. Isn't that insane? It's crazy, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, he, he gave him tutoring and the guitar. And like you said, he had toured England and Europe with several bands before he answered this ad. And as he said, and I took that faithful train ride down to Birmingham in 1980. Yeah. So April of 1980, Andy joins the band. Andy starts working at the Rum Runner as a cook and like a fix-it man, like fixing the interior stuff. Yes. He's a rock and roll guy. Yeah, he is. And here's what he said. He says, I'm a rock fan, but the girls hung out at the disco. I recommend a large portion of both. <laughs> You know, he's very blue collar. Uh-huh. They called him the balls of the band. Yeah. Black, 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 black. Then they're like, okay, we need to have a singer. And there's this waitress at the Rum Runner named Fiona Kemp. Yep. And she's like, you need to be my ex-boyfriend. Yeah. She's like, my ex-boyfriend is an actor and a poet. I think he'd be good as your singer. And they're like, uh, okay. Well, I mean, you know, Fiona's an attractive girl. Mm-hmm. Bring him in. As soon as he walked in the door, they're like, Please, God, let this guy be able to sing. <laughs> Simon's a good-looking dude. Yeah, and he's got pink leopard print print pants, right? <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> so Simon LeBon, he was older than these guys by a couple of years. He was born in 58, born on his father's birthday. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. He had been acting and singing since he was a little kid. His mom got him into TV commercials, uh, advertisements for washing products and such. And he had been a part of the boys' choir. And so he understood harmonies and melodies. He had even been a part of a punk band for a little while called Dog Days. Did you know that one? I did not. All right. But just before he makes this grand entrance into the Rum Runner in his pink leopard print skin-tight pants, yes, he had gone down to Israel to work as a tree surgeon in a kibbutz in the Negev Desert. Okay. I mean, what? Yeah. Uh, it's just bizarre. And so even while he was down there, he had written in this book that he had of poetry and songs, some of which the became songs in the album we're going to talk about in our next episode. One of those songs became The Chauffeur. Yeah. So he comes back from the Negev Desert doing whatever awesome work that he was doing down there. <laughs> right. And he's like, oh, I'm so thankful there's no more sand. Let's go have a beer. And he goes to the club. So when he meets them, yeah, they know he's the guy. As soon as he walks in, they're like, this guy's a star. He's great looking. He carries himself well. He's got style. Fiona Kim was absolutely right. This is our guy. And they say, what's your name? And he goes, my name is Simon. And they go, let me guess, Taylor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I forgot. So so when they had gotten their fourth member, it was their third Taylor. Andy Taylor. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. And in the 80s, I was 100% sure that these guys were brothers. Yeah. I mean, it's confusing, right? Yeah. I, just, I mean, they all have a similar look. Yep. Their last name is Taylor. Obviously, they're, they're related. Right. Of course, not. Not one of them related. <laughs> Once Simon was on board, John wrote in his diary, the star has arrived. Bob boys! Bob boys! Bob boys! So they get together. They start playing music. Simon hasn't done a thing, but he hears the first song that they play, and he goes, oh, hold on. I, I think I've got something that'll go with that. And he pulls out this book that we were talking about, flips to a page, and starts singing his own lyrics in his own melody to the music that they're doing and they're like it is time we have we have arrived if you will. wow that's incredible you know they talked about how early on you know Nigel John and Nick they had this massive ambition yeah. right and Simon was actually impressed by their ambition he was told by John and Nick that Duran Duran would play London's Hammersmith Odeon by 1982 Wembley Arena by 1983 and Madison Square Garden by 1984 guess what they met those deadlines they tried to break us Looks like they'll try again Nice. 
I mean, do you understand the quickness? I mean, we're talking we talk about overnight successes here. Yeah. Andy Taylor joined the band in April of 1980. Simon Le joined the band in May of 1980. And by 1981, they're recording their first album. It's happening And fast. releasing it. I know. And touring the United States. Yeah. Before even Andy and Simon had joined the band, they had sent out those demo tapes that we were talking about, right? Yeah. And they're so good and so good looking that there's a bidding war that starts between EMI and Phonogram. And ultimately, they're like, well, the Beatles were with EMI. We need to go with EMI. <laughs> That's great. Yep. So their first official gig with the classic lineup was July 16th, 1980. In addition to putting together an album, they are forming a corporation, right? They have a brand identity that they want, and that includes style. They did something that almost no other bands were doing at this time. The fashion industry and the rock and roll industry were enemies, right? right. You had the Sex Pistols out there, given you know the people. yeah. You yeah. had guys who were poking holes in their face just to look ugly, right? Right. right. But these guys went the entire opposite direction, and they said, "We want a stylist." So they get Perry Haynes as their stylist, and they get fashion designers Con and Ball and Anthony Price to design their clothes, which defines their look for the beginning part of the 80s. Wow. On March 5th of 1981, they were invited to play on Top of the Pops, and they performed Planet Earth. So Planet Earth is off their debut album, Duran Duran. So here's the interesting thing about Planet Earth. So Planet Earth is a moderate success, but it fails to chart in the top 40 in America. You're right. And they really want to conquer America. Yep. And so they go to the record company, and there's a fight over which single is going to be released next. Okay. They all believe that Girls on Film is the strongest song on the album. Yeah. The record company is like, no, we're going to release Careless Memories. Okay. And Nick is like, oh, no. Like, Nick is ready to die on the hill. No, Girls on Film. Girls on Film. And the record company is like, nope, Careless Memories. So they, they release Careless Memories, and that one sputtered. Yep. And they had kind of lost that momentum. Yeah. So the next, the third single was like Do or Die. Right. And that's when they dropped Girls on Film, July of 1981. Now, they had already appreciated the power of the music video. And this was before MTV. Right. MTV came out in August of 81. They knew, hey, we need to start making videos. They had a video for Planet Earth that was interesting. That they played on at discos and stuff like that? Yeah. And, but they said, okay, for girls on film, we want to get as rough and dirty and raunchy as we can. And so they hired a couple of guys who were also musicians to direct this video for girls on films. The guys were called Godly and Cream. Godly and Cream, yeah. And they put together a film that was not just rated R, it was probably rated NC-17. <laughs> it, it had strippers making suggestive movements on poles covered with cream. There was ice on certain areas of the body. And it was the first video to be banned by MTV and by the BBC. How about that? Talk about making a name for yourself. It instantly made the song a mega hit. It's legendary. I mean, they had topless mud wrestlers, <laughs> yeah, right? Right. And it made the song a hit. This song was played late at night on, like, Cinemax and stuff. Like, like you couldn't get this on regular TV. <laughs> It was on like cable. You had to watch Skinamax to see a Duran Duran video. How about that? Wow. So the song becomes a huge hit, reaches number five in the UK, right? They open their tour June 29th, and there's nothing but screaming girls. Like, like screaming so loud that they can't hear themselves play. It's like the Beatles. It's like the Beatles. Yeah. In fact, they're called the Fab Five. Yeah, as a throwback to the Fab Four, which is what they call the Beatles. Yeah. Right. Listen to this. One girl brought scissors in order to steal a lock of hair from Simon's head. And when she lunged, she almost hit him in the eye. Oh, my. No word on whether she actually got a lock of <laughs> hair or not. <laughs> so on their tour of the U.S., yeah. they're in New York for the first time. Yeah. They're Like you said, they're really interested in conquering America. So where do they go when they arrive in New York 
first, Studio 54. Right. Right? So they showed up. They soaked up the nightlife. Nick mentioned that he really wanted to meet Andy Warhol. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. They were like, well, we Andy comes in here all the time. We'll let him know. Put a pin in that. Okay. Okay. They move on to the Midwest where John says they scored their very first Playboy Bunnies in Chicago. Okay. So it's not entirely unsuccessful tour. Okay. Right? Yeah. They go to LA. They play the Roxy. Okay. So, you know, they're doing these legendary places. Venues. Yeah. Yes. They go back through New York. You said doing these legendary places. <laughs> <laughs> they're playing these legendary venues, like you said. They go back to New York, and this is where they meet Andy Warhol for the first time. And guess what? Andy Warhol decides that he is in love with Nick Rhodes. Well, I can see that. <laughs> so Andy was very, very gay, and Nick likes to wear makeup a lot. Nick's straight, but he does like the feminine look. He has the glam thing going. And has, I mean, he, 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 he was consistent. He didn't give that thing up. I don't know that he still doesn't wear makeup probably right That's now. right. That's right. In fact, when Nick got married, yeah. like two years later, yeah. the tabloids made the comment that the groom wore more makeup than the bride. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know he married an heiress? Like, she was, like it's some Iowa girl whose family had this department store called Yonkers or something. Yes. And there was, the, I mean, it was a huge chain and she was the heir to the fortune. So he could have his yacht parties where the wow. yacht was docked and he just got to drink cocktails. <laughs> so after they tour the U.S., they go back to the U.K., back to their parents' houses. <laughs> right? Yeah. It's, 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 it's like my dad was telling me I couldn't want to watch what I want to do on TV. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, this is when they work on and produce the song My Own Way, mm -hmm. release it as a single, as a bridge right. between the first album and Rio. Girls on film is hot and they want to maintain the momentum. Absolutely. So it's 81. They're back from their U.S. tour. There's riots going on in their home country, civil unrest. Their parents won't let them watch what they want to on TV. <laughs> They're like, ah, I guess we need to write an album. The record company wants hits. So they moved to the south of France to finish their second album. That album is... Rio. <laughs> Rio produces some of the biggest hits for the MTV generation. Absolutely. You've um, got Rio. You've got Hungry Like the Wolf. You've got Save a Prayer. You've got The Chauffeur, My Own Way. You have all these great, great songs and the videos that come with them. Follow us next week as we go track by track through Rio. Where we will have our special guest, Melissa Mingle, with us. Melissa Mingle, mega Duran Duran fan. Russell Mulcahy is from Australia. Yep. Australia is where Duran Duran had their first number one hit with Planet Earth. Okay. They were wildly, wildly successful in Australia. That was where the 99% women screaming their heads off part began for them. They realized that things were happening once they hit Down Under. Right. And so they've got this guy that's made this movie called Razorback, which is interesting and weird. Yes. Who's just hungry to do more movies and not getting any opportunities. And so they're like, how about you come make some music videos? And he's uh -huh. like, some what? Well, short movies with our songs in them. Okay, if you've got money, I'll come do it. And what we end up with is, what, five different videos by Mulcahy, which help define what videos are. I mean, there were no rules at the time. This is literally as MTV is being born. And we've got this. Yeah, they spent eight days in Sri Lanka, got three videos out of it. Yep. And then after that, they had a trip to Antigua. Yep. I like to say it the British way, although I've said it Antigua my whole life. Antigua. And that's where they filmed the, the Rio video. Yep. So they're having success in the UK. They're having massive success in Australia. Rio comes out, and it fizzles in the U.S. Yeah, it's a little bit disco synth pop too much for the American audience. So EMI had promoted Duran Duran in the U.K. as this new romantic band, but the new romantic movement wasn't a thing in the U.S. And so the U.S. audiences didn't know what to do with it. They didn't know where they were going to sell them. And so Capitol Records is the subsidiary of EMI that's in the U.S. And so they say, okay, 
let's try to remix some of these songs in a more dance-friendly kind of way. And so they get their guy, David Kirschenbaum, to remix a few songs, EP worth of songs, Hungry Like the Wolf, Rio, Planet Earth, and Girls on Film, all like the night version, the, the dance mix style. Right. Once that came out, these dance clubs started to play it. Once the dance clubs started to play it, then Capitol Records said, why don't we remix the entire album? And the Duran Duran was like, that's great. We'll go for that. And so David Kirschbaum remixed the entire Rio album in a U.S. style remix. And at that point, it started to climb the charts. These guys were influenced by glam rock and punk and disco, which, I mean, those three things are groups that the people hate each other in, right? Sure. But these guys are willing to say, I like them all, right? John Taylor was quoted as saying, when the jukebox would play songs, he's like, hey, Anarchy in the UK, I love this song, Sex Pistols. And then the next song was Good Times by Chic. He's like, this song's awesome too. <laughs> yeah. And that's... I kind of, it's kind of me. I kind of identify with that. Sure. And I think, just to, to kind of go off topic here a little bit, that's kind of the way the world is now. People our age, still, you've got your heavy metal adherence. You've got your, you know, new wave adherence and, and pop adherence. But for our kids with streaming music, they can literally, it's like the jukebox in their pocket where they can hear Sex Pistols followed by Casey and the Sunshine Band, followed by Metallica and can love all of it sure. and not be running afoul of some click or something, you know? So it's interesting that we're in this stage where people are exposed to all of these different kinds of music and all new music sounds the same. Yeah. It's kind of disappointing. Right. It's okay. There's a revolution coming. We're going to see it. <laughs> Let's We're going to see it happen. We're waiting on it. Come on, young musicians out there. Start doing the club scene again. Start doing the dance clubs. I don't care how the revolution happens, but bring us good music. So Rio takes off with the marriage of MTV, Duran Duran, these catchy songs. It turns them into superstars. Yep. Once Rio is done, which we'll talk about in detail next week. Yep. So we're going to kind of dodge Rio right now. Come back next week as we go track by track through that one. Pressure's on to come up with new stuff because they are scorching hot. Right. And so in between, as they did with My Own Way, they have a song that bridges the two albums. That song is called, Is There Something I Should Know? Please, please tell me now. Please, please tell me now. Yeah. Mega hit. Oh, huge hit, right? So in March of 1983, they guest VJ on MTV. They debut this new song. Uh-huh. They are the darlings of MTV. Absolutely. So I thought this was interesting. Their advisors at that time told them, hey, listen, rock and roll is pretty fickle. You guys might want to stabilize your finances for the future because the page turns quick. Okay. And they're like, what are you talking about, dude? We're the best. We're the hottest thing in I'm the sorry, world. I'm sorry. I'm going to have to let you go. My Coke dealer's here. <laughs> I just bagged two Playmates. So then they go back to the studio to work on their third album. That third album is a little bit harder than the first two. Simon talks about how they had a buildup of songs, so they got to start from scratch. Right. So Seven and the Ragged Tiger comes out. That produces The Reflex, New Moon on Monday, and Union of the Snake. So here's something interesting that happens. Nick Rhodes also becomes a producer at this time, and he discovers this band called Kajagugu. Yeah. He discovers Kajagugu and he's like, I want to produce a song of yours. So he co-produces a song called Too Shy. Which hits number one in the UK before Duran Duran ever has a number one hit. Wow. Well, that's interesting because Nick's having success as a producer. So John's a very competitive guy. We talked about this. And so he sets out to produce somebody. So who does he want to produce? His girlfriend, Baby Buell. Baby Buell. She's a good-looking lady. Steve Tyler and Liv Tyler. Good-looking lady, not so much in the vocals department. Right. We'll talk about that one next episode. That's right. At this point, though – 
the cocaine use and drinking and drugs start to escalate. Right. And they're starting to feud. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So Andy is engaged. Mm-hmm. Nick is engaged. Yep. Nobody likes Nick's fiance. Right. And so Nick brings her on the tour. They start referring to her as Yoko Ono. <laughs> As everyone does. Uh-huh. And problems start to set in. Egos are big. Money is huge. Drugs are everywhere. Drinking is everywhere. And they start to dislike each other. They also start to take a disliking to the Burroughs. Yeah. They noticed that the car that John had was really, really a cool Ferrari. And theirs was even nicer. Which seems kind of petty. Yeah. But they started to think, why are these guys so rich yeah we're the ones doing all the work making the money now the burrows and simon lebon continued their friendship they love to yacht together right well that's the thing they went on a big yacht race like what are you gonna do if you're ultra wealthy and one of the biggest stars in the world you're gonna go on the across the world boat race (laughs) right and so they're in third place and all of a sudden the keel falls off the boat turns upside down Yes. There's a guy trapped down there, like in the sails and the, the chains and stuff. And yep. Simon LeBon is jumping in with a couple of other guys and tearing the sails away to try to save this guy's life. Yes. It's intense. Yep. And so, obviously, done with sailing after that, right? Wrong. Wrong. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Let's do this again. And they do it again, and they still get third place, but at least they finish this time. Right. Third place. What do you do? So in June of 1983, is there something I should know hits number five on the Hot 100? They're still scorching hot. Listen to this. John escorts his girlfriend, no longer Baby Buell. Okay. Janine Andrews. Okay. Who's a Bond girl. Okay. She has a small part in the movie Octopussy. Okay. And by the way, by the way, listener, Shirley fan out there, if you haven't heard it yet, please go back and check out our Battle of the Bonds episodes where we compare Connery and Moore and Octopussy and Never Say Never Again. Yes. Love that episode. Okay. There were a lot of girl parts in Octopussy. That was a, a lot of girls in it. Yes. You, you said girl parts. <laughs> <laughs> there were a lot of those too. Okay. So she has a small role. Princess Di was the guest of honor at this screening. Princess Die, if we haven't mentioned this, said Duran Duran was her favorite band. Not one of, yes. but her favorite. Yes. Princess Die was huge. And she was about the same age. Uh-huh. Yeah. So she loved these guys. She thought they were great. And she was the guest of honor. But when John watched the movie, he heard the song All Time High. we've talked about in our Octopussy versus Never Say Never Again episode. We did, and we did not care for it. John said, John agreed with us and said, that song sucks. <laughs> That's right, sucks. <laughs> so at the post party, who's there other than Princess Di, but Cubby Broccoli. Cubby Broccoli, the producer and owner of all of the James Bond films. Yes. And so John's like, tells his girlfriend, Janine, he's like, hey, introduce me to Cubby Broccoli. I've been a James Bond fan my entire life. And so that she's like, okay, sure. So she brings him over to Cubby Broccoli, says, Cubby, this is John Taylor. He is a member of Duran Duran. They've got the number one song in the world right now with the reflex. And Cubby's like, I know exactly who you are. And John's like, when are you going to go back to having good songs in James Bond movies? And the guy's like, oh, you didn't like that one? He's like, no, that was terrible. He's like, well, maybe you should do the next one. He's like, I will. (laughs) Okay, then. So, So Cubby's like, done deal, right? Yeah. So it's like this handshake deal right there, uh-huh. right? Yeah. You got the hottest band in the world, James Bond, producer. Cubby Rock is like, we got to make this happen. So he goes to John Barry, who's the Bond composer, Yeah. who's in his 50s. Yeah. And he's like, guess what? I just hired Duran Duran to do the theme song. And John Barry's like, eh. <laughs> and Cubby Rock is like, no, you're going to make this work. So they come up with arguably the greatest Bond song of all time in A View to a Kill. So while they're touring, they get a call. They've been invited back to London to do a charity performance for Charles and Lady Diana. Right. We talked about Lady Di. They love Lady Di. So they, they're like, yeah, we're in. 
right? Yeah. yeah. So after the performance, they meet her. She shakes their hand. And as they're introducing themselves, she's like, well, I know you. You're John. You're Roger. You're Simon. She knows them. She's a fan, like a legit fan. Yeah. And the world knows that Duran Duran is her favorite band, okay? Right. Now, later on, they learn that there was a plot by the Irish Republican Army to bomb and assassinate Prince Charles and Lady Diana at that concert. So it turns out a double agent, (laughs) this is no joke, in the Irish Republican Army Uh foiled the plot, okay? Okay? The agent said that Duran Duran had no idea how lucky they were, right? Wow. And because Duran Duran was known to be Lady Di's favorite band, the bomb was believed to have been set to go off during their performance, thereby assuring that they would kill her. Wow. Foiled by a double agent. So while they're on tour, the reflex hits number one in America. But at the end of the Seven and the Ragged Tiger tour, this would be the last time the original lineup tours together for 20 years. Once they've completed Seven and the Ragged Tiger, they need another song to bridge the gap. So what do they come up with? Huge song called Wild Boys. So going on that success, they get a call from Bob Geldof from the Boomtown Rats. From the Boomtown Rats. Right. Among others, yes. And he wants to do a song called Do They Know It's Christmas? At this point, the band is going in different directions, right? We talk about how Andy is wanting to be more rock. John is wanting to do more rock. Nick is staying firm as Mr. Synth. Roger is trying to play the middle. Simon's playing the middle. So John and Andy decide they're going to work on a side project. They had always loved Tony Thompson from Chic. They were good friends with Robert Palmer from Addicted to Love fame. Right. And they said, hey, let's get together and let's let's do the song Bang a Gong. And so they create the power station. station does pretty well. They go on tour in 1985. They have some hits. They have Bang a Gong and they have Some Like It Hot. This is when the band like fractures, right? Right. So the leftover members of Duran Duran, they form the band called Arcadia. Right. And now you have competing factions within the band. So when Live Aid comes around, Bob Geldof says, hey, I got a great idea. Why doesn't the power station play first and then Duran Duran can play later? They're competing with themselves. They're competing with themselves. So under this pressure cooker, Mm -hmm. that's when they shoot the video for A View to a Kill. At that moment, they all could not even look at each other in the eye. There's points in the video where one of them's trying to kill the other one. And it was like, this is real life. (laughs) Right. So in 1985, the power station is touring, but Robert Palmer drops out because the album that he's been working on called Riptide, which produced Addicted to Love. Right. And I didn't mean to turn you on. Right. His record company's like, dude, you've got a hit album here. You need to drop out of this side project and get busy with this. We've got some supermodels that'll play music for you. That's right. That's right. So we talked about how the power station played at 645 during Live Aid and Mm -hmm. Duran Duran plays at 845. By the way, they played four songs of You Do a Kill, Union of the Snake, Save a Prayer, and The Reflex. Okay. Two billion viewers, and when Simon hit the high note on A View to a Kill, his voice broke. It's kind of an embarrassing moment, and that was the last time they would all play together for 25 years. Wow. Live Aid. Yeah. So shortly after, Roger quits, retires to the farm. Andy takes off. He makes a solo album. He actually does a great song in the summer of 86 called Take It Easy. It was the theme for American Anthem. And when he did that, he ghosted the band. Like Andy quit returning phone calls. He wouldn't show up. Even though he was contractually obligated to play on the next Duran Duran album. Uh Like they're writing songs. They're doing stuff. Where's Andy? We don't know. Can't find Andy. So he's out. That's when they hire Warren Cucurillo 
right, who had played previously with Frank Zappa. Is that right? Yeah. If you'll remember back in our Toto episode, we talked about how Steve Lukather had tried out for the Frank Zappa band and Frank Zappa had humiliated him in front of all of the other guitarists as a technique to get rid of the crappy players and just get the cream of the crop. Well, Warren was like an obsessive Frank Zappa fan. So like when he played, he knew every single song that they had done note for note. So he was flawless. He might have been the guy who won that competition. I don't know. He played with them in the 70s. But yes, he ends up being the guitarist for Duran Duran. So that's one circle to tie in Dodo and Duran Duran. We got another one coming. That's cool. Warren actually, after Frank Zappa, was in Missing Persons Uh with the Basios. So he joins Duran Duran, and in 1986, they come out with the album Notorious. Notorious. The song hit number two on the Hot 100. The album reached number 12, but they're starting to kind of slide. Right. Not as many hits, not as impactful, not as much rotation on MTV. In fact, this is the heyday of hair metal. So in 1988, they come up with the album Big Thing, which has a couple of great songs on it. I Don't Want Your Love and All She Wants Is. But Duran Duran is no longer the darlings of MTV. No. They're starting their slide. Yeah, it's a different era of music. Yes. So when 91 comes around, like the 90s hit, grunge happens. Yeah. It's not just grunge, but it's like pop culture shuts the door on the 80s. Yes. And bolts it shut with a lock. Yep. And proclaims every 80s band dead. Yep. And they're like, crap, we're dead in the water here. Right. And so they had money problems. They had debts. Wait, wait. They had money problems? They had money problems. I thought somebody warned them and told them to invest their money. Well, apparently they didn't listen. Okay. So they're, they're at their lowest point. So Warren Cucurillo is the one who kind of took the lead. He's wow. like, hey, guys, get up off the deck and let's go. Yeah. So he was watching MTV, and he started realizing that the tide had sort of shifted on MTV. Uh-huh. He's watching Grunge. Yeah. He's watching the Nirvana, the Pearl Jams, and all this type of thing. And the recent fad on MTV was to go unplugged. Okay. And so he's like, guys, let's do something softer. Let's introduce acoustic guitars. Let's go that route. Uh-huh. And that... Winter, Simon writes the lyrics for the song that becomes Ordinary World. Ordinary World is written about his best friend from the Rum Runner, David Miles, who died from an overdose. Nick said this song came from space or the air. Uh You know, we've talked about how some people downloaded it right from God. Yep. It was that kind of moment for the band. Great song. It's a wonderful song. I had washed my hands of Duran Duran by the mid-90s, and I could not argue that that was not a good song. Oh my gosh, it was so huge. And it was one of those deals where when they completed it, the record company leaked it to radio stations because they knew how awesome it was. And so there was a demand for the video before they had even created it. Fantastic. Sting told John that he wished he would have written it. (laughs) Nice. I love it. So the wedding album that contained The Ordinary World rose to number four, their best since Seven and the Ragged Tiger. And their second single, Come Undone, was unbelievable as well. Yeah, another great song. The 90s reintroduced themselves to a generation. But it wouldn't last. So ultimately in 1997, John leaves the band. Yeah. He decides he wants to pursue an acting career, which, I mean, for the pinup guy, sure. Why not? Why wouldn't you want to do that? Sure. So the first movie that he's in, it's called Sugartown. Okay. Co-starring Rosanna Arquette. Get out! Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. So, full circle flashback to the Toto 4 episode, Rosanna. <laughs> yeah, once again, these these albums or these bands at least are intertwined. Such a great triumphant story for these guys. Yeah. Now, in 2003, the Fab Five get back together. Andy doesn't stay for very long. No. But they're still making music today. Yep. Released an album October of last year, Future Past. I've heard it's great. Melissa told us it was great. I'll have to go check it out. We got to go see them in concert. Yeah. Okay, guys, we're going to take a quick break and give you our Shirley Showcase this week. We have a special guest. Yeah, this is David from Guy Fans of Duran. He has his own special Duran Duran podcast. And here's what he had to say about the Rio album. 
This is David O. from the D-Side Podcast. Thanks to the Shirley Podcast guys for asking me to share my thoughts on Duran Duran's Rio. So when someone asks you for something like this, I figure it could go one of two ways. You could do a deep dive, really analyze things, or you could just go with your first thoughts off the top of your head. I've gone with that latter approach today. First of all, it's kind of important to know my experience with Rio is a very American one, as in we got it a good six months after the original release. Just as its time was sort of winding down in most places, the U.S. label gave it a remix and one last big push. And the U.S. finally noticed. Uh, Late 82 saw the re-release of Hunger Like the Wolf, then the Rio single in the spring of 83. The biggest thing about the Rio album in my mind is that the music was nearly inseparable from the videos. Six of the nine tracks eventually got videos. Two of my favorites did not hold back the rain and last chance on the stairway the videos were groundbreaking if you look at the other videos made in 1982 you'll see how incredible something like save a prayer looked to us back then the music is nearly flawless the redo of my own way being maybe one of the less interesting but not particularly bad tracks on the album rio is now mostly regarded as one of those works of staggering genius but it definitely wasn't always that way um for non-fans they were pretty boys with no substance um the music press were rarely kind and even as fans it was it was hard to get too obsessed with that one album because in the space of a year the u.s got hunger like the wolf rio is there something i should know and union of the snake as radio singles hunger like the wolf save a prayer rio planet earth and girls on film still from the first album is There Something I Should Know and Union of the Snake were all over MTV. And once again, in the space of a year, we got the Rio re-release, the first album repackaging re-release, and Seven and the Ragged Tiger. So as good as Rio was, it was one part of a Duran onslaught for me at the time. My main memories come down, like I said, to the videos, and I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it adds, not detracts in this case, and um, just a general Duran domination that, that it sort of moved quickly through multiple looks and styles and sounds around that time. If we look at its legacy, it's a monumental album from the music that now at least partially defines a decade. And in any survey I do on my Twitter page, any song from Rio beats any other song ever, always guaranteed (laughs) so those are the top of my head thoughts on duran duran's real album thank you again for asking me to share this with you guys i can't argue with a super fan man he's i I love it there is some serious love for this album and it is well deserved it's an incredible album and i cannot wait to get into it track by track but that was a great analysis david thank you for doing that guys go check him out on his duran duran podcast the d-side podcast all right everybody come back next week as we dive in track by track for the rio album released in 1982 turning 40 this year yep guys be sure and hit that follow button on your podcast app please tell your friends about us and if you are so inclined please give us a five-star review if you will on your review on your written review throw in the words Hungry Like the Wolf or Dances in the Sand or anything Duran Duran related, we will give you a shout out on the podcast. You will be entered into a contest to win a custom engraved cup with Shirley You Can't Be Serious and your name. So be sure to come back next week. Join us. We'll be with Melissa Mingle, ultimate Duran Duran expert, talking about Rio track by track. Come back next week, guys. It'll be fun.